All right. The goal this morning was to spend two hours on one verse. The first hour kind of got all messed up. Um, so I need as much time as possible to try to finish this now, or it's going to turn into we did like a 30-minute first hour that did, was really just kind of a, I guess, kind of an intro. And so this is really supposed to be part two, but I really have to do part two almost like it's part one and then try to finish part one and part two in this hour. That, so I've got a lot to try to, to try to accomplish here, okay? So I'm going to go as, as fast as I can, but I want to try to complete this idea as much as possible, all right? So, so, so well, Lydia is the only one who is in, uh, here currently for Sunday. Oh, you heard some of it. Okay, so Twyla heard, and well, you've already heard some of this from the Bible study exercise. So, um, but we're going to go through this as, as, as much as possible, all right? So everyone ready. Okay, now, it, I believe that there are, there are a number of verses in the Bible, number of verses in the Bible, that if anyone is open and honest with them, they will realize that these verses bring up all kinds of difficulties and problems and questions that everyone should ask. But we know that typically in most churches, you don't ask those, you don't acknowledge those problems, you ignore those problems, even many commentaries. They just throw out a little simple answer, and everybody just says, amen, get me out of here by noon, and everybody's happy. And you know, I, I can't operate that way. I just can't, I can't, I can't. When the verse has problems, I don't know why we won't acknowledge it, because it's weird. It's like, Christians don't want to acknowledge the problems, and when you point out the problems, they get defensive. If I get away from Christians and I talk to agnostics or atheists or skeptics, they're more than willing to discuss the problem of the verse, right? Christians don't want to go there. But just by, so by not going there doesn't change the fact that the verse contains problems, right? Contains difficulties. Didn't we see that in the early part of Romans chapter 2? When we see, wait a minute, we're judged according to our works? And so most of the commentaries will like, there's no problem. Your works prove that you're saved. Wait a minute. Okay. So God is the one judging. And my works are going to prove that I'm saved, but my works will never meet the standard which God gives, which is perfection. And the Bible says that if I sin in one way, I'm guilty of the whole law. Well, that puts me like in a never-ending place of guilt. And even my good works are tainted by sin. So how could my good works ever prove that I'm saved? Right? So we, that, that, that verse created problems, right? And we spent weeks and weeks. Did, uh, and this is very important. Sometimes when the verse presents a problem, are the solutions always super easy? No. And sometimes all we can do is go, this is the best we can come up with, and then do what? Just leave it alone. And say that. We, we grab on to what we can know, stand on that, and the rest of the things we don't know, we say we can't explain it. And some people don't like that, but you just, some people want that answer. But some people want certainty over truth. Remember, I've talked about that, that danger. You just want an answer. Well, just wanting an answer doesn't mean that your answer is right. It just makes you feel better. But the Christianity is about, not about feeling better. Bible study is not about feeling better. Does everybody understand that? It's about figuring out the truth. So we're looking, we're going to look at a verse that to me has a million problems. But for some weird reason, nobody seems to think so. But I, I, I don't know how we can get around it. So this is the way we started this morning. So if you pay any attention to popular culture, you know right now that there's this big thing going on of people 
what they go, they're going through the process of deconstructing their faith. They post TikTok videos. These are people who are raised in a Christian home, may have been in church, may even be pastors. And they have a crisis of faith. They're like, man, Christianity doesn't make any sense. So they start posting these videos of them calling into question the Bible or calling into question the existence of God or calling into question the church. And and they deconstruct and deconstruct. By the time the deconstruction is over, some find themselves, they abandon Christianity, they renounce Christianity, and they're done. Others will deconstruct, still be a Christian, but they may say, I'm done with the church. I'm never going back to a church. Some may say, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'll go to church, but I no longer believe this or this or this or this. And, and whenever Christians see these deconstruction videos, Christians tend to get, take it very personal and get very defensive, right? And when they get very defensive at it, what they have a tendency to do is not really listen to the person who de- who's deconstructing. They just want to say, well, clearly they were never saved. And that's always our good go-to answer. Clearly, they were never saved. And then that makes us what? Makes us feel better. But does that resolve? I, want, I, I guess it resolves the problem in our mind. But I think it's important to listen to what was the crisis of faith that led to the deconstruction. Because we may get some kind of understanding that may be beneficial. Now, obviously, if you listen to the deconstruction videos, there's a million reasons why people start questioning Christianity. There's a million, okay? But I think there's one area that we've talked about that Christians cannot ignore. One of the reasons some people start questioning Christianity is because Christianity is sold in one way, but experienced in a completely different way. All right? And we all know that Christianity is sold, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to summarize a lot of this because uh, in the first hour I tried to cover a lot of this. It, it's sold this way. When you become a Christian, you're a new creature. Old has passed away. You're more than a conqueror. You can do anything through Christ which strengthens you. You do not have to sin. You can be victorious over sin. You can stop sinning. That sounds good. And everybody will say... And in churches where people applaud, they would do what right there? I mean, y'all don't applaud for anything, okay? But they would applaud. They're like, oh, that sounds so good. Right? But what do they experience in their lives? Sin, 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 sin. Churches split, broken marriages, sexual sin, grumbling, complaining, fighting, bitterness, anger, Sin is just, I mean, look, sin is not the exception. 2,000 years of church history will prove that, yes? So wait a minute, how can you be preaching, how can you be selling Christianity this way? Now, for some people, they're just like, well, they just, they, they just convince themselves that they're not really sinning that much, or that it's only talking about big sin. They will do something, and they, they just go on with their Christian life and never have a problem. But there's some of us... At least I can just speak for me. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. You say this, but this is the reality. Again, I'll just give you the simple example. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. All have become new. No, wait, stop right. How is that typically preached? Referring to you practically. Well, I can, I can call that into question in five seconds. If you just look at the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith, what does it say about your corrupt nature? 
it remains even in those who are regenerated. Well, if the old nature remains, then not everything has become new. Not practically. No, so in what way am I a new creature and everything has become new? Positionally. Before God, the old is completely gone, right? And, and before God, what am I? Perfectly obedient, perfectly holy because of an imputed righteousness. And now how am I to view you as a Christian? I'm to view you in the re- reality of your position, not in the reality of your practice. I see a new creature. I, now, that doesn't mean I ignore sin, but I'm saying that's how I see. I don't, hold, I don't view you. That's how come the Bible, like if you go through Hebrews 11, those people are viewed, not, are there mistakes mentioned? In Hebrews 11, it mentions all of their Faith, 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 faith. Like, wait a minute. What about all of their sins, sins, sins? Like, Hebrews 11 could be rewritten to go, they committed this sin, they committed this sin, they committed this sin, they committed this. It could just give you all of their sins. Why doesn't it give them their sins? Because in their position, what are they? Perfectly righteous. Remember, that's that's the key. So, we sell it, and and sometimes these verses that that seem to sell it, Christians never question them. Well, we've got a verse that we have to question, all right? And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. I've got to go as quickly as I can here. I'm, there's no way I'm going to finish this, so. First Corinthians, there's just no way. First, I needed an entire hour just to do the second part of this. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Very famous verse, right? Everybody knows the verse. One of the verses I memorized as a brand new Christian. Right? Okay. It was in my little memory pack, all right? So I know the verse. What does the verse seem to be saying? What does it appear to be saying? Right. In other words, you can do what? You can avoid sin. And if you can avoid sin, then what is possible? Sinlessness. Right? Hey, you're able. You're able. In other words, they focus on the fact that God is not going to give you more than you're able. So you're able to resist any temptation that comes into your life. You are able to resist it. Not only are you able to resist it, what else is he going to provide? A way to escape. And we understand the able and the escape as referring to the ability not to sin and the, the ability to escape sin. Right? That's the, I mean, that's the way it's preached. That's the way it's preached. Now, the reality is what? Sin, 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 right? And I said, what I love, I've read commentaries and books, and it's always like, hey, you don't have to sin. And then somewhere, like in a very, you know, it's almost like the very, 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 very small print. However, you will still continue to sin. You don't have to, but you will. 
Well, if I don't have to, you're telling me that I have the ability not to. So you think somewhere in 2,000 years, someone would have said, I'm not going to do it. But even the Apostle Paul was the things I want to do, I don't do the things I don't want to do, I do. And then he says that with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, he serves the law of sin. Well, Paul, he wrote 1 Corinthians. Just don't do it. You don't have to. Now, I, I, I just start talking this way and some Christians are almost like, he can't be saying these things. He can't be saying these things. How dare he say these things? Well, wait, wait, no, 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 no. I, don't get mad at me. I didn't write the verse. These are questions any, any reasonable person who reads should go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Right? That doesn't make any sense. It would be like, hey, if you drink a, a Mountain Dew, you can dunk the basketball like LeBron James. Okay, well, I, 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 it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've drunk 50 Mountain Dews and I still can't dunk the basketball like LeBron James. This is garbage. Right? I'm not trying hard enough. Like that, I think you would be like, I think you, that's false advertisement. Well, sometimes the church should be sued for false advertisement. Because something doesn't make any sense. That's what it appears to be saying. The reality is we know that we sin, we sin, we sin, we sin, we sin. Agreed? So then what are our options? What are our options and how to deal with this? Well, option number one, some people say the word temptation there should not be translated temptation. Should be a trials. And I think this is the solution out of it. So, yeah, this leads to the same problem, but this is the way it works, okay? God is not going to let any trial come into your life that you're not capable of handling, and with that trial, he's going to give you a way of escape. Well, let's just stop right there and think this through. Number one, every trial is a temptation. Does everybody understand that? Every trial is an enticement. Remember how we define temptation in the Bible study exercise? I know you do. Temptation is any enticement away from God's standard in thought, word, action, or attitude. Well, let's think of any kind of trial. Think of the most insignificant trial, right? The most insignificant trial. You wake up and your wife says something to you in a smart aleck way. That's a pretty insignificant trial, right? Do you, how do you typically respond? Okay, wow, okay. Okay, well, okay, that... that Okay, never mind. Bobby proves that you can be without sin, okay? okay? I wouldn't respond that way, but but I'm saying the most insignificant things, we have a f- tendency of responding what? In an unbiblical way. That's small things. So can you imagine, if you take this to its logical conclusion, here's someone who suffers some horrible tragedy, and here comes some Christian. Well, you know, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Now, what are you saying more than you can handle? Are you implying that, in other words, you will handle yourself in a godly way without sin, facing that horrible tragedy? Can you imagine the pressure you just put on someone? Hey, God gave you... Oh, and not only that, what would be the logical response? So, if I, if I couldn't handle it, then my, my family member wouldn't be dead? That makes no sense. I don't want to... Ha- I would be like, I can't handle anything. The wind blows wrong, I fall on the floor and start crying. Okay? That, 
No, so again, that doesn't really fix it because a trial is a temptation. And we always respond to quote-unquote trials typically in ways that are not necessarily God-glorifying. Can we all agree on that? Right? So that doesn't really work. What's the second way of trying to resolve this? What's the second way of trying to resolve this? Basically, it goes like this. Hey, God gives you the ability. He's not going to give you a temptation beyond your ability. You don't have to sin. If you keep sinning, this is proof that you are not saved. Well, that's a problem. Right? That's a major problem. Okay? So, what can we do here? Well, I think the only, the only option we have here is we have to look at this verse possibly in a different, a different way, right? There's got to be, there's got to be some solution here, all right? So first, let's just take the verse apart briefly. We did this in the first hour, but we'll do this again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's just remember, what's the key? You have to observe before you can interpret, right? All right, so let's just go through a basic interpretation of the, a basic observation, I should say, basic observation of the verse. What's the first thing you observe in the verse? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's just, we'll break it down simple. First thing you see is that all temptations are common. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Everybody say, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Whatever temptation you face, other people have faced similar temptations, right? All temptations is common. So you can't say when you're being tempted, oh, this is a temptation that no one else has ever experienced. Okay, there's nothing new when it comes to temptation. All right, That's, that sounds good. All right, next observation. God is faithful. That sounds great, right? That sounds good. God, what does it mean God is faithful? He's trustworthy. So no, uh, temptation is common. God is trustworthy. So far, everybody's like, I love this verse, right? Because it tells me that what I'm experiencing is common. Okay, so good. I, I was thinking I was the only one being tempted this way. At least I know I'm not the only one, right? And sometimes when you... Th- and you always got to be careful when, you, like, when someone else is tempted in a certain way and you're like, well, I don't know what their issue is. Just remember, it may not be common to you, but that temptation they're facing is common to plenty of other people. And you've got temptations that maybe they, they can't... Uh, whenever a person is tempted, just don't think that, well, I don't know what their problem is. Because guess what? It, 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 people have fallen into the same kind of sins since Adam and Eve. Right? right. So, but God is faithful. Now... That, that sounds like good news. That sounds like God is faithful. Stop the verse right there. Okay, good. That means I'm going to be tempted, but God is faithful. Pray. Okay, stop the verse. But the verse doesn't stop there, and oh, how I wish it was. Because the next part gets really confusing, all right? So God is faithful. What's the next part? Next observation. Oh, this gets really problematic. All right, this drives me absolutely crazy, all right? God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted. Stop right there. This means what? Who's in control of temptations? God is in control of the temptations. Does not everyone have kind of a philosophical problem at this point? All right, so if you say, well, God's not going to let Bobby be tempted beyond what he is able, but if God allows Bobby to be tempted and Bobby sins... Why would God give him a temptation that he knows Bobby is going to sin? Even if you say Bobby has the ability, if he's going to sin, why would God give him the temptation knowing that he's going to sin? Does 
That blows my mind, right? I mean, just I mean, we see this weird thing happen in the Bible, right? Remember Sarai? Right? Abram lies and says, hey, he's my sister. She's in a bad situation. Could be basically engage in a sexual relationship with someone other than her husband. And who steps in? God steps in and stops it. But when Abram goes, gets ready to have relations with Hagar, where's God? That's, that's bizarre. Is that, that, that's bizarre to me. This verse says God is in control of temptation. Look, I don't have an easy answer here. I wish I had an easy answer. I know this. God created the world and created Adam and Eve knowing they were going to sin. So somehow, in your theology, I hate, I hate to say this, but you're just going to have to do this. You have to acknowledge somehow sin is a part of God's ultimate plan in some way, shape, or form. You just have to acknowledge it. If your theology is like, nope, sin is never a part of God's plan. Well, if it's not a part of God's plan, I got a million questions, right? Because if God is in control of all temptation and he knows which ones I'm going to fall into, he could stop and go, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. Or here's a novel idea. Stop all temptation and nobody sins. What, well, this verse would imply that, that, that he's in charge. Now, does ever now you talk about that? Christians get all nervous and say, "But, but," and try to come up with a million. And you just you talk yourself in circles trying to figure that out. I, I cannot figure it out. Let me make it very clear. I cannot figure it out. There is no easy answer. And I can go through every systematic theology that's ever been written where they attempt to come up with an answer. There is no. Here's what I know: God is in control of the temptations. Okay? He allows some temptations, and I know I have sinned. I know you've sinned. And I know I'm still responsible for that sin. Even though I could, I could try to blame God. I can't blame God. Right? You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I agree with you. But that, I don't have any good answer. So what's the first observation? Temptation is common. Second? Thir- third? God is in charge of the temptations. Wow, that's hard to uh, comprehend. Number four, we are able. He's not going to give you a temptation beyond your ability. That means you have an ability to do what? This is the way it's typically read. Now, now, please note, the verse just says you're able. It doesn't say you're able to do what, but we always infer that that means you're able to do what? To not sin. I don't know if that's how we should actually read it, but that's how everyone reads it, okay? So you're able. Next. Okay, and with with the temptation, he's going to give what? A way of escape. He's going to provide a way of escape. You see that? And then the last observation. Able to bear it or to endure it. We're, We're going to be able to endure it or to bear it. Now, I think the ability is connected to the endurance. That somehow there's no temptation that we're not able to endure. Now, I don't know what that means, but we read it. How do we typically read this verse? That you are able not to sin. That you can escape sin. I don't know if the verse is actually saying that. We, we've been so conditioned that we read it that way. To me, all it is saying that God is in control of the temptation and that I am able ultimately to endure it. And that whatever escape gives me the ability to endure it. What does it mean to endure it? Does it mean not just not to sin? 
you could possibly go with that, but I'm just saying, Paul could have been much more clear, yes? All right, so there is, there is the, uh, the, the basic breakdown of the verse. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a piece of paper, draw a line right down the middle, and I want you to write down on one side three words. All right, you ready? Able, escape, endure. Able, escape, endure. And those come, where do those words come from? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? And the reason I want you to look at those words is because, again, we infer that that means you don't have to sin. You can stop sinning. That's the way we infer it. But that goes against all of our theology that says you still have a corrupt nature, and we know the reality is that you sin, 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 sin. So maybe we're reading something there that shouldn't be there. I don't know. I don't know. Right? On the other side of the page, I want you to write down a bunch of words that you're going to think have nothing to do with this, but has everything to do with it. Are you ready? I want you to write down the word drink. I know you're like, what in the world? Okay. Well, the, the answer here is you have to drink heavily to try to understand. No, I'm joking. Okay. Okay. Drink. Next, chastisement. Next, atonement. Next, intercession. Next, death. Next, serpent. Next, high priest. I know what you're thinking. What in the world does that have to do with able, escape, and endurance? Doesn't seem to to have any connection. Let me say them again. I'll just read them all again. Drink, chastisement, atonement, intercession, death, serpent, High priest. I know what you're thinking. What in the world? Uh, You're drinking something because that doesn't have anything. Trust me, all of those words I just gave you have everything to do with 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Everything to do with it. And I think in those words is the solution to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Everybody ready? Okay. Now listen, I know that where I'm going, nobody agrees. Okay? Because all the commentaries just say, hey, you can do it! But you can't do it perfectly. Now let's move on to the next verse. What? I can do it, but I can't do it perfectly? But hey, it's Christians. We don't, we don't care about thinking, I guess. We just, we're just, okay, sounds good. I'm glad I paid $25 for that commentary. Okay, I, I, I can't handle that. All right. So here we go. First thing we need to do is zoom out. All right, we're right there, we're focusing on 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? Seems to say that I can, I can stop sinning. Let's zoom out. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is found in what book? 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church located in a city. The city is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the city. First, the church of Corinth is filled with what? Sin, 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 sin. And you got every kind of sin in the world going on in that church. You got people getting drunk at the Lord's communion. You got people suing one another. They're divided. You got a, a son having relations with his father's wife. You got all, you just got, you got everything in the world going on. This church is a mess. It's broken beyond all comprehension. So you would think that if 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says what everyone implies, then why wouldn't Paul just start the letter with, hey guys, I got a report that there's a bunch of sin in your church. Stop doing it! You don't have to do it! The end. 
So why would he wait till chapter 10 to, to supposedly tell them, hey, you don't have to do it, and then go right back into telling them about all of their sin? <laughs> it's just from a logical, per- that, does that make any sense from a logical point of view? I'm like, of all the books, 1 Corinthians is the, and, and, and not only is there sin in the church, how does he reference them? As believers. Now that really messes up your, your theology. These are believers who are just living in blatant open sin. He calls them carnal, even though they're, but he refers to them as believers. That re- re- creates all kinds of problems. All right? So we zoom out. Now let's, now let's zoom a little bit back in. Not all the way in. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now let's look at the chapter. All right, everybody ready? Moreover, brethren, please note, what does he refer to them? Brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Stop right here. Immediately we know the chapter is about whom? Israel. Now stop right here. What do we know about Israel? Well, what do they do in the Old Testament? It seems like they're really good at it. Sin. Over and over and over and over. So wait, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 falls in a chapter about a group of people, God's people, who all they do is sin. But we start off not with their sin. We start off with some very interesting things about them. So let's look at some basic observations about Israel in 1 Corinthians 10. Everybody ready? First observation. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our, all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Stop right here. Two observations. First observation. Israel experienced a supernatural deliverance. This is referring to, to what? The Exodus. Going through the sea. They're delivered from what? Bondage in Egypt in a supernatural way. Agreed? The cloud can also refer to a supernatural guidance. How were they guided? Cloud by day? Fire? Right? They, they experienced a supernatural guidance. Supernatural deliverance. Supernatural guidance. What else do they experience in these verses? And they did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was... This is supernatural provision. Now that's some good stuff, right? Supernatural deliverance, supernatural guidance, supernatural provision. What more could these people have? Are these people in a great position? And then the very next verse is, very first word, but which negates everything that comes before it. In spite of all of that supernatural deliverance, all of those wonderful blessings, they, what happened? God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Wait a minute. These people who experience all of these great things, are you telling me that they sinned? And what would be the answer? Yes, they sinned. All right, so then what's, well, what do we get from this? Now look, this is very important. Everybody ready for the next verse? Now... These things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So 1 Corinthians 10.13 falls into a a, a passage 
where we are being given an example. Who's the example? Israel. So in other words, somehow this example has to be taken into consideration and in our interpretation of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Does that make sense? Has to. Do you, you say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Well, wait, jump to verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the world are come. Before we even get to verse 13, twice we are told these things. These things refer to four events. These four events are the example that we have to understand before we can interpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I think in these four things, we get the answer. And guess what you're going to find in these four things? In these four examples? Guess what you're going to find? Drink. Chastisement. Y'all got the list? Atonement. Intercession. Death. Serpent. High priest. Now you see where I got those? I got those from the very examples that we are given. Now, my original plan this morning was to take hour one and to go through the four examples and just show you the four examples. Then in hour two, I was going to come along and then interpret the example and how it applies to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Now I have to try to bring both of that and do it all at once. Okay, I don't know how well this is going to work, but you just stay with me, okay? All right, so when, when, things, when things didn't go right, in the first hour, so I was tempted to have wrong attitudes, which I did, okay, right? So I didn't handle the trial very good, okay? But now I've got to try to make the best of it here. So just, I'm going to go as fast as I can, but please be patient with me, okay? Please just give me a little bit of mercy here because I've got to try to finish this or this, or I'm just going to, I'm going to, well, I'm going to have a bad, you'll cause me to sin. You'll be the source of my temptation, okay? All right, all right, here we go. All right, is that, does that work if I blame you? Okay, probably not. All right, here we go. What's the first example? Where is it found? Look at verse seven. Neither be ye what? Idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat, and drink, and rose up to play. Isn't it interesting that drink is mentioned now twice? I just think that's kind of interesting. You may not think it's interesting, but that's okay. Now, this first example takes us back to where? Exodus chapter 32. So let's go here quickly. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Now, I want you to realize everything that I'm doing here to try to interpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I want you to realize I am doing so from the text. Now, if I could do what many preachers do and I could just preach 1 Corinthians 10, 13 based off my favorite commentary. Okay? And, and trust me, that, that's common. When, when I, as a young preacher, that's what you do. Like, oh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what a, find some commentaries. How do they handle it? Then you take those commentaries and you write your outline and you preach it because you don't know anything. And at some point, you've got to go, wait, 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 wait. Study the text. So I'm looking, why are we going here? Because these are the examples given to us prior to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, yes? And it's mentioned twice that these were written for our 
example, right? So obviously there has to be. So what happens in in, uh, Exodus chapter 32? Verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed, come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. All right. Now, let's just go through this quickly. Remember, there is no temptation that is not common to man. What is their temptation here in First Corinthians, or First in Exodus thirty-two? I want you to identify the temptation. What's the temptation? What are some of the temptations experienced here? Well, the the, the ultimate sin is idolatry. Yes, but there's a lot of things. They they're concerned, right? Moses brought them here, and in a sense, where it's almost like where Moses is, God is, and if Moses is gone, God is gone. So they look for, in other words, in a difficult circumstance, they look for something other than the true God to get them through it. Is that a a fair way? Now, you could argue that what they're doing here is not turning from the true God, but they want a visible manifestation of the true God. The only problem with that is Exodus 20 told them not to create any golden uh, an image, right? Any vain image, right? So you get the idea. So whatever the issue is, they are tempted in a sense of idolatry. Now remember, so there's the temptation. There is the temptation. Now what do they do? They make a, a golden calf, right? Is that not what they create? Okay. And... And verse 7, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which have brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And what do we see? We see them basically running around a golden calf. Idolatry. So there is a temptation. There, what happens in this end of temptation? Sin. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Yes? And he's going to step into the situation. Let's look at everything that occurs here. We're going to break this down. Everybody ready? I've got to go through these quickly. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Uh, everybody look at 30, uh, verse 32. Um, I'll, I'll do this in this order. Go to verse 32. Uh, look at verse 20. All right? So God steps in. He tells Moses, hey, look, the people have corrupted themselves. Right now, something else happens before this one, but I'm just going to go in this order. Okay, so they're in trouble. There's confrontation. They're confronted in their sin, and then look what happens. This really weird, weird thing happens in verse 20. All right, Moses, of course, he he uh, breaks the the uh, the tablets. He's all he's just everything's going bad, right? Everything's going bad here, okay? And verse 19, and it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. He's not happy. He's upset. Verse 20 is bizarre. And he took the calf, which they had made, and he burnt it in the fire. He ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Now, does that not just seem weird? To, remember what do I always say? When something is just not, doesn't make any sense in a text of Scripture, pay close attention. That seems bizarre to me. 
It seems bizarre to me. Because do you find any other cases where someone committed idolatry and they had to drink the idol? Seems really weird, doesn't it? Now, you could argue, just from a textual, I will be willing to acknowledge, is that God instruction or is Moses just mad and making the people drink it? You seem to, you tend to think that God is the one guiding Moses here, right? I mean, God, God's been in pretty close contact with him. I would hate to think that it's just Moses going, that's it, you're going to drink it, right? Okay, I, don't, I would hope it's not it, not, but he has been pretty mad. So you could get into a big debate here, but I'm just going to say that whatever the case is, God steps in and the first thing they have to do is what? Drink. They have to drink. Just keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. They have to drink. All right? Next, what happens in 32, 28? Verse, five, and when, or verse 25, we'll go back, back up a little bit. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. I mean, you talk about, they, not only they build a golden calf, they took off all their clothes to go running around, uh, dancing around it. You talk about like these people lost their absolute minds. Like Moses disappears for a few minutes and it's like, what is going on, right? But it just shows sin, right? Shows sin. Like it's easy to be so, what is wrong with those people? Remember, that's for our examples because we're just like them. So, uh, he basically, then Moses stood on the gate, verse 25, of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto them. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the first thing they have to drink something, what's the next thing that takes place? Death. I mean, that's a horrible scene. There's nothing pretty about this scene. They go through and start slaughtering people. I mean, there's nothing pretty about it. It's ugly. It's horrible. Agreed? All right, so death occurs, right? Now, look at verse 32:30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up unto the Lord pre-adventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. So they had to drink, there was death, and there is an atonement. What's a, a, a simple definition for an atonement? Reconciliation between God and man via a sacrifice. Right? Is that a good way of describing it? Right? Atonement is God reconciling himself with man via a sacrifice. So an atonement is made. An atonement is made. What's the next thing that happens? 32-35 is really interesting. So after the atonement is made, after death has occurred, right? After they've been made to drink an idol. Okay, verse 35, and the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. There's some kind of, some people don't think it's like a pestilence or like an actual plague, but it's the idea that he plagued them with some kind of trials and troubles and difficulties. In other words, we can refer to this as some kind of chastisement comes upon them. All right? So, let's think this through in the language of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Everybody ready? Everybody paying attention? All right. Temptation. Idolatry. When God, when they felt like God wasn't around, they turned to something other than God to face their fears and their problems. 
Can we agree that those would be basic elements of the temptation? Right? Did they what? Sin, but who steps in? Because God is faithful. But God steps in. So what is the escape? How are they able to endure this? How are they able to bear this? Using the language of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. They didn't stop sinning, but God still is faithful. And so what leads to their, in a sense, of escape and to bearing it? What are the things? Number one, drink. Number two, death. Number three, atonement. Number four, and there's one other thing that happens. Go back, I think, to verse 11. What happens in verse 11? And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? What happens? What's going on in verse 11? What's that called? Intercession. We have intercession. So we have the temptation. How are the people... What does God do to help them endure this and to, in a sense, escape this? What are the, what are the, uh, let's go through the things. Drink, death, atonement, chastisement, and intercession. Does that ring some bells to anyone's mind? Because it does me. All right, now let's go back through each one of them and I'll interpret them in a way that would be applicable to us. All right, are you ready? Because I think this is pretty amazing to see. All right? Okay, here we go. All right? The first thing they had to do in Exodus 32, 20 was what? Drink. And it just seems bizarre to me. They got to drink. All right, now, you and I, we face similar temptations as they face, right? How can we endure? How can we bear? How can we escape? We have to drink something. We have to, because the concept of drink shows up later in the Bible, does it not? A couple of places. How about John chapter 4? John chapter 4, verse 14. We'll go to verse 13. Remember, this is the woman at the well. And look at verse 13. Jesus said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. If we have to drink something, in that particular case, they're drinking something in a form of punishment, but we can drink something that we can then what? Have everlasting life. And if you have everlasting life, what can you escape? Punishment for sin. Yes? Isn't there an escape? Yes? You have everlasting life. Guess what cannot get rid of your everlasting life? Sin. How can you endure sin? Everlasting life helps you endure sin because that sin does not destroy that everlasting life. That's something we drink. We drink of that. And we drink of this by faith, yes? It's not something an actual drink. Now think about it. Here's Jesus. I didn't even think about this. All right. Remember when he's in the garden? What does he ask? Like the cup. It's taken away. But he says, not my will, 
and he drinks the cup. What's that cup? Cup of God's wrath. He drinks God's wrath on my behalf so that if I, in a sense, drink of what he provides, I have everlasting life. So all the punishment for sin, he has drunk, he, he drunk that and now I get to drink of everlasting life. That is my escape. Yes? That's how I can endure. That's how I can bear. Look, there's more about this drinking concept. Right? Um, go to Revelation 21.6. Revelation 21.6. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Right, go to Revelation twenty two seventeen. And the spirit and the bride say, Come and let him that heareth say, Come and let him that is a thirst come. Whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's the water of life. It's the water of eternal life. It's the water of salvation. It's the water that if we drink of it, we will never thirst again. That's how we can endure. That's how we escape. They had to drink something. We have to drink something. They drank something in punishment. We drank something to save us because someone drank our punishment. Someone drank God's wrath on our behalf. I should have thrown in those verses. I didn't even think about it to right now. All of a sudden, like, well, that's even, that even adds to the picture, right? Hey, let this cup be removed. And we know what that cup is. It's the cup of God's wrath. His wrath is described as a, as a cup. Yeah, and it shows drinking as a punishment. Yes. So they, that's how we escape. We have to drink. Right? Let's go, let's go to another one. Let's go to another one. Oh, man, we're, we're not going to, we got, we got to make it through these. Okay. So there's the drinking. What's the next, go to Exodus 32, 28. What's the next thing that happens in Exodus? Death. There's death. Yes. There's death. Now, I think this one should not require much uh, work for you to figure out, right? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Everybody there? But I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how, the, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. We need a death as well, yes? Christ died for our sins. How can I escape the punishment of sin? How can I endure sin? Christ, who died for, my, for our sins. He died. My sins were placed where? On him. There's a bunch of other scriptures we could, we could go through on these. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet un... For, if I can read correctly, Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The way of escape for them, ultimately, the way for, for their punishment to stop, there had to be death, yes? Guess what? For, for us to escape, there has to be death. 
For us to be able to endure and to bear, there has to be... I know we read we read 1 Corinthians 10, 13 as like able to bear and escape as not sinning, but maybe the reality is it's the, that what God does for us in the midst of it and through it, which is we need to drink of everlasting life and we need the death of Jesus Christ. We have to, we have, to have that death for us. Look, when sin occurs, death will occur. Yes? But it's either my death or the death of Christ. I rely on the death of Christ. And by the death of Christ, what do I escape? Eternal death. Does that make sense? All right. Um, Go to uh, Exodus 32.30. What happens in Exodus 32.30? I heard someone say it. We have an atonement, yes? Exodus 32, 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up unto the Lord preadventure and I shall make an, an atonement for your sin. And what is an atonement? It's, re- it's reconciliation between God and man via a sacrifice. So Moses is going to do what for them? Offer a sacrifice. Now, guess what? Do we not have the same kind of situation in the New Testament? Go to Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. And what do we read here? Whom God, speaking, of, I'll go back to verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. How, how, God saves us through what? Through the sacrifice of Christ. He reconciles us through that sacrifice. Yes? Go to Romans 5.11. Romans 5.11, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We receive, we, our escape isn't an atonement. Now, how, why, why is that, why is an atonement an escape? How is it gives us the ability to bear and endure our temptations? Because if we sin, what can we do? We have an atonement to do what? Reconcile us to God. We have a drink that gives us eternal life. We have a death that someone died for us. All right? Now we have another one here. All right? Go to Exodus 32, 11. Exodus 32, 11. What happens here? What is Moses doing? He's praying for the people. He's interceding on the behalf of the people. Okay, now I wonder how that could apply to us. Does anybody know? Go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25. Verse 23 for context. And truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of Christ, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. That's always good to know. Jesus is a priest forever because he doesn't, Die because he's eternal. Wherefore, he, speaking of Christ, is able to what? Save them to the uttermost that come to him, that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever 
liveth to make intercession for them. We have someone who's making intercession for us. How do they escape? Through intercession of Moses. How do we escape? Through the intercession of Christ. How are they able to ultimately endure what they endured? Through the intercession of Moses. How can we endure what we endure? Through the intercession of Christ, which is better than the intercession of Moses, if you didn't know that. Okay? I mean, that's the whole point of Hebrews. It's got Christ is better than everything in the Old Testament. Yes? All right? And then, Exodus, uh, there's more scripture I could look at about the intercession. All right? Because Christ not only does he intercede for us, he's the mediator between God and man. He mediates. He brings us. He reconciles us. But Exodus 32, 35, what happens there? Chastisement. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Alright, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against him, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. For if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof are all, uh, are all partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. One of, the, one of the ways we escape, one of the ways we endure, is through what? Chastisement. God chastens us, which helps, hopefully, moves us away from what? Sin. Moves us, hopefully, in a different direction. Is it ever going to be perfect? No. But it's through that, in, if we endure the chastening, then we can endure this. So, let's put this together. Now, let's go back. Oh, I wanted to go through all of these, but there's no way. It's already 12.06 at this point. Yeah, there's no way, but here we go. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. All right. There hath no temptation taken you, but as such is common to man. Everybody see that? Now you can draw an arrow from that first part right back to 1 Corinthians 10, and you can start in verse 7. There's a temptation, yes? Is that common to you? Idolatry? Looking to something other than God when you're going through a difficult situation? Can we all say amen to that? All right. But God is faithful. Praise God. Was God faithful in the, in the situation of 1 Corinthians 10? He's faithful. He steps into the situation, right? Now, I don't like the next part. He's, who controlled the temptation they experienced? God. Right? He could have known if Moses stays here for, tw- for one hour longer, the people are going to build a golden calf. He could have sent Moses back 15 minutes before they built the golden calf. Five minutes before. Because hey, God knew what they were thinking. 
Because they were thinking it and talking about it before they did it. And God could have said, okay, hey, you got to go, Moses. You got to go right now. Go, go. And Moses could have walked in and they'd be like, okay, never mind. Put all the jewelry back. Just go back. Right? It's like a kid when all of a sudden the parents walk in and you're like, hey, mom and dad, I was just thinking about how great you are. Could you go that way where I hide what I just brought into the house? Okay, right? Yes? But God doesn't do that. Now, I don't like that. Because what happens as a result of him not sending Moses? Death. I can't reconcile that. You can't reconcile. Don't even pretend that you can. I, I can't. But I know this. God is faithful. He allowed it to happen. But guess what? The ability and endurance, I don't think clearly apply, at least in their case, you can't say, well, they had the ability not to sin. Well, they're sinners, so they were going to sin. Even if you say they had the ability not to, God knew they were going to sin and still let the temptation happen. So what's the, well, who cares if he knows that you have the ability not to? If he brings the temptation knowing that you're going to, it's irrelevant whether you have the ability not to or not because you're still going to sin, right? That, 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 the whole thing just is a circle like you're a hamster on a wheel going nowhere, okay? So, but here's the thing. God does step in. And ultimately, what's the way they escape and what's the way they endure it? Go through it. What's the way they escape and what's the way they endure it? They have to drink something. Bizarre. At least that just to me, from, a, from just the story, I'm like, how many times does idolatry happen in the Bible? How many times did they drink the idols? So it's a weird situation, right? But In this particular case, I think it's interesting because this story is an example to us, especially, and it's connected to 1 Corinthians 10.13. So that, that right there makes me start thinking something weird's going on. And another one of these cases, it's weird, because in, the, in, in like the last example, an atonement is made in the last example. But guess what? It's not an atonement where blood is shed. It's an atonement of incense. Where in the world? What is that? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Like there's another words, and then there's another story here where they look at a serpent on a pole. Like in other words, all of these stories, there's one element and almost all of maybe just one of them, and three of them, there's clear elements that you're like, wait, there's an atonement, but that don't kill an animal? And they offer up incense? How is that an atonement? And then they're like, wait a minute. So you look at a, a, a snake on a pole and that fixes everything? That seems odd. And that, wait, they're drinking something? I'm just saying there's some, there's at least enough here textually to make me go, hmm, something's going on here. And the fact that Paul says twice, these are our examples, I think, that, I think that's where we have to find the answer. All right, so let's go through this. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that all temptation is common. We go back to Exodus 32 because that's the first example Paul provides and we see a temptation that we can all say, amen, because we're all idolaters at heart. Remember what does Calvin say about the human heart? Adult factory, right? We, we create idols faster than, than we can. I mean, we just boom, 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 boom. We're right there working all day and all night creating idols, okay? So we're idolaters, all right? So everybody got that, right? Now, they sin, yes? Just please note, in every case, that, what's funny, in every example, they sin. They did not sin. So it's weird to take 1 Corinthians 10 and go, well, this means I don't, I don't have to sin when all the examples are 
of sin. But God steps in. God is faithful. We can agree with that. Now, the way they, the, the way they endure it, the way they escape it is for, for, through the following reasons. So let's go through this again. Drink, number two. Death, number three. Atonement, number four. Chastisement and intercession. Now, I can look at my life and your life as a Christian, right? Am I tempted? God is faithful. How does he help me endure? How, how does he uh, help me endure? How does he give me the ability to endure it and to escape it? Well, let's go through the first one. I have to drink something. What do I drink? Everlasting life. I drink salvation. And the reason I can drink salvation is because Christ drank the punishment. He drank the idolatry. He drank my idolatry. Right? I mean, that's so powerful that, it, that he says, please remove this cup in, in the garden. That's just so powerful. We drink. He drank for, he, he in a sense did the drinking, think about it, that Israel did. He drank the punishment. He drank the idolatry. He drank the sin in a sense that it was imputed to his account, right? And then I, but when I drink of Christ, how then can I endure and escape? Let's make sure. Because when I drink of Christ, what do I have? Everlasting life. You see how that's an escape? See how I can endure? Because what's going to happen? You're going to sin. I'm going to sin. What's my only hope through that sin? Everlasting life. Not my works, his work. Okay, what's the second thing they do? There's, there's, there's death. Now we know how that works. Christ died for us. Because Christ died for me, what do I escape? Eternal death. Eternal death. Christ died so that I don't have to. Amen? Third thing. Atonement. Made an atonement. A sacrifice to reconcile between, to reconcile God with man. Who is our atonement? And what did he do? Reconciled us with God through his blood. How do I endure temptation? How, all of this is through Christ. Next, intercession. Who, live, who lives to make intercession for me? Christ. He makes intercession day and night. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Christ is praying for me. Now I know as Christians we always want other people praying for me. I, I kind of have the attitude like, yeah, you can pray for me, but there's someone praying for me far better than you. Right? You can say, pray for me. Okay, well, go ahead. I mean, who do I want praying for me, Bobby or Christ? Now, some people say, well, I need both. I think Christ got it covered. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask someone to pray. I'm just saying that you should have such confidence that Christ is praying for you 24-7 that you're pretty much covered. Right? Now, you may think Bobby can pray for me for something that I want, where Christ may not pray for something that I want, okay? So Bobby may pray, hey, he really wants that new stereo equipment. Could you help him out where Christ may say he doesn't need it, okay, right? So, yeah, I need Bobby to pray, but I don't think Bobby's going to change God's mind. Right? But that gets into a whole discussion about prayer and how do we understand it. Our views of prayer is really weird at times from a human perspective, is it not? But I'm just glad that I know Christ is praying for me 24-7. Because guess why? He's got to pray for me 24-7. Because I'm pretty much sinning 24-7. Oh, come on. And you guys aren't? Y'all are looking at me like, I'm so shocked. I only sin about seven hours a day. Okay? He's got me beat by 24. Okay? Like, I... 
whatever, that wouldn't be 24, it'd be 7 minus 24, but you get the idea. It's math, don't, okay. You get, you get the idea, right? So, next, chastisement. God brings chastisement into our life in many different ways. That chastisement gives me what? Tries to move me away from sin, tries to purge that, and, and tries to move me in the right direction. That's how I endure it. Is it, is it pleasant? No. And we, and it's, trust me, it's not for you to run around saying, oh, you're being chastised. Don't do that. You're not the chastisement police. It's not for you to determine who's being chastened. Because remember, in Job, all of his friends got it wrong. So, if all of them got it wrong, there's a good chance you'll get it wrong. When someone's suffering, don't say because they're, oh, I hate that. Oh, drives me crazy. Christians love to do that. Especially if they get, they don't like someone and then they fall into sin and then they're like, it could be like, oh, oh, it could be about me. Well, man, he fell into sin. Oh, and he has seizures. I bet you that seizures are chastisement from God. Just, man, just stop that. Just please don't do that. That's evil. That's beyond evil. That's, that is, you don't even know how messed up that is. Okay, you don't know. All right, bad things happen even to people who are not committing any major sin. Joseph? He went through a lot of bad things. <laughs> okay, right? Okay, a lot of bad... Well, he was being chastened. Job? Oh, wait, he, he wasn't being chastened. Like, I'm saying, a perfect man is the way the text says. So, so just don't do that nonsense, but just understand that chastening is a part of us escaping and enduring. And then last... Was that the last one? That, that's it. Now, that... I'm not saying it's perfect. Please understand. But I know this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 makes a much more sense to me that if I look back to the very examples Paul gives me, I do see temptation, yes. I do see God, yes. And I do see, in a sense, an escape. Not from sinning, but escaping in it and enduring through it. Now, it's not perfect, because in many cases, the people who committed the sin, what happened to them? They died. Right? They died. Right. So that, that, that somewhat messes up the, illustrate, the, the connection a little bit. But it, for me, it doesn't completely mess it up because you're right. Someone died, but someone did die. Christ. That's how I, that, that's, my, that's my ability, is Christ. His death, I escape what? The punishment of sin. I escape what they experienced because of Christ. Does that make sense? I endure it because of Christ. Christ is the answer. Not my ability to to stop sinning. It just doesn't work. Even my ability to handle trials. I don't always handle them correctly. I fall into sin. I get mad. I get frustrated. So what do I have to do? Well, Christ died for me. Christ, 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 Christ. I follow him. Guess what? I can endure and make it through it. I think that's the only solution. Now, I, we, there's three more examples. We'll have to work through them some, I don't know when. We'll, have to, we'll try to work through them together. We'll have to work through all four of these probably one more time. Um, so I apologize for all the rep- repetition, but uh, put it this way. I think in this particular case, all the repetition is warranted because you're not going to get the teaching anywhere else. Nowhere else you're going to get the, what we just did. I don't know. I can't, I can't think of a commentary that even does what we just did. And I looked at, I don't know how many commentaries. 
Right? I mean, I read many of them in the Bible study exercise. Like, These are commentaries are ridiculous. They're like, you can do it, but you won't do it perfectly. What is that? What does it even mean? But Christ can. Christ did. He was tempted in all points without sin. And I'm in him. I think that's the only hope. That's the only hope. Because it sh- that, that to me makes more sense than, you know, Twilight calling me saying something horrible happened. I'm like, hey, well, you know, God's not going to only give you what you can handle. Okay. Or maybe you mean, you know, I think it's, it's better to say, you know what, you, got, you better rely on Christ. Rely on Christ. Doesn't mean excuse sin. I'm not saying that. But because people always take it as your excuse. Not, no one's excusing sin, but you have to understand that we're going to sin. Now, we have to deal with it. There may be consequences, have to be confrontation. There may be some consequence. I understand that. But they're, they're, the goal of whatever, whatever consequence is placed on someone for sin should always be the goal of restoration and getting back, not, not living that way because there's forgiveness in Christ. Christ is the way we make it through it. It's the only way to make it. It's the way Israel made it through. How, think about it. Even after all those four examples, what does Israel continue to do after the four examples that we're going to read there? Continue to sin. How bad? Captivity. They come out of captivity. 70 AD. When they finally come back to be a nation. Continue to sin. But yet all Israel will be. How is that possible? Not because of them. Because Christ. That, that, that's the only, I, I don't have any other better answer there. But you could look at the next three examples and just break them down the way I did. Look at each thing that happens. Just write them out. Boom, 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 boom. And then think of New Testament going, ah, oh, that connects. That serpent on the pole, I think you can figure that one out really quick. I mean, that, Jesus even takes that one. I mean, so there's not even a question there. Their, their escape was to look to Christ. In fact, that may be the, the one that proves the point the best. Hey, you sinned. Did they get face a temptation coming to man? Yes. Was God faithful? Yes. Did he provide a way for them to, to escape it? Yes. What was it? Was it them stopping to sin? Looking to that so that they would live even though they had sinned. That, if that doesn't, to me, that, if that doesn't fix it, I don't know what does. I mean, I... I to me, but I went through the first one because it's just, it just covers many of those aspects. But you see it all right there. The sacri- you see it all. And so we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, in spite of everything not going perfectly right this morning, I pray that somehow this approach to this passage of Scripture will prove to be beneficial to someone who hears it. And I just pray that uh, you use it for your purpose and your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...